Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. We use knowledge as a tool to solve our problems. However, knowledge doesn't help us fix our human souls. And many of the problems we face in the world are based on a condition of the human soul. You're listening to Modern Day Idols, Knowledge, by Rev. Peter Yonker. Two scripture readings this morning as we continue our sermon series on modern-day idols. One reading from the Psalms and the other from the book of 1 Corinthians. We'll start with Psalm 131, which, depending on the day, is my favorite psalm. And it's a psalm of someone who is utterly perplexed. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I'm content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. Now from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, I'm going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. This is in the middle of a a long section that really goes from uh, chapters 1 through 3 of 1 Corinthians. And Paul is already um, talking about the wisdom of the world, and he's already said that Jesus Christ, and particularly Christ crucified, is the wisdom of God and the power of God, and he sets that over against the wisdom of the world. And then he says this, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise or persuasive words, but with demonstrations of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest upon human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. We declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age have understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and not no human mind has conceived, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. This is the word of the Lord. Once again, I will begin by reminding you, as I have done throughout this series, is that idols are not bad things in and of themselves. Idols are good things, God-created things that are lifted up too high or are twisted into the wrong position. And that's true for today's idol, the idol of knowledge. Knowledge is not a bad thing. Knowledge is a good thing, heaven forbid that on this Christian Education Sunday, I should speak against knowledge or the life of the mind. 
Knowledge is an absolutely good thing, and Scripture calls us to pursue the life of the intellect and the life of the mind. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And when he says that, it's not some sort of minor side note. This is the first and the greatest commandment. Jesus says, I've given you a mind, and I want you to use it to love God with that mind. How do we do that? How do we love God with our minds? Well, there's lots of ways, and I think I can say without fear of being wrong, that it happens all the time in our Christian schools. How do you love God with your mind? You can do it by meditating on God's law, his moral rules, and his ways in history. Psalm 1 says, Blessed are those whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditate on his law both day and night. Who are always thinking about it. Philippians 1 says, I pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight. So, the middle school Bible class learning the Ten Commandments, figuring out what they mean, and figuring out how they apply to life today is loving God with their mind. The high school religion class that is studying atonement theology, studying what the crucifixion of Jesus actually means in Scripture and what people have said about it through history, that class is loving God with their minds. How do you love God with your minds? You also do it by studying his handiwork, the things he has done in creation. Psalm 19, the heavens are telling the glory of God, the skies are proclaiming the work of his hands. You read a psalm like Psalm 104, it's one long meditation on God's handiwork, on the good things he has done. So the biology student in the Christian school, learning about cell division and how a cell is made up, is loving God with her mind. The high school history student studying the movements of history and how cultures grow and, and how they shrink and how they bring human flourishing and sometimes how they destroy human flourishing, that class is learning to love God with their minds. And the kindergarten class that goes to the critter barn in Zealand and gets to hold those tiny little newborn chicks in their hand, those little yellow puff balls, and their faces are, are alight, they're, they're shining, and as they hold them, the teacher says, now children, those, those, those chicks are fearfully and wonderfully made. Be gentle. That class is learning to love God with their minds. When we delight in God's ways and God's works, and when we proclaim them, and we can proclaim them either by writing a scientific paper or by writing a song or a poem about the glories of God. Either way, when we do these things, we are loving God with our minds. Love the Lord your God with all your mind. Neil Plantinga says it is a commandment that pushes aside once and for all all Christian anti-intellectualism. It's a call for us to go out into God's world with a curious mind and a mouthful of praise. So knowledge, the intellect, the life of the mind, it's a good thing. We're called to be curious. We're called to pursue it. 
And it's also a really, really powerful thing because it's such a good thing, because it's something that God gave us that's enormously, has enormous capacity, it is capable of amazing things. And it's precisely the things that are strong that are most likely to become idols. And human knowledge, when paired with human ingenuity, is enormously strong. Just think for a moment about the car that you drive around this city. And we don't normally think about your car. But when you get in your car, you are surrounded by a testament to the power of human knowledge. In front of you is an internal combustion engine, which is an amazing feat of engineering. Thousands of little explosions controlled somehow and in this perfectly machined cylinder that lead to this smooth forward motion at great rates of speed. Amazing. A testament to human knowledge and know-how. Underneath you are four rubber tires. Rubber. A chemical miracle. This stuff that is soft enough to grip but also durable and can hold up in all kinds of weather. Amazing. Around you is the metal of the car. Metal is incredible stuff. Somewhere in human history, some person went down into the earth and took something that looked like a rock and they melted it down and, and they, they found that this, this something came out of it that it could be made into something strong and then they kept doing it different ways and different alloys until now we have this, this strong light thing that can be encased our cars and can even be beautiful and aerodynamic. And in front of you on the dashboard, enormous computer power. Your car can tell you where you are and can steer you exactly to where you need to go. And nowadays on the newer cars, if you forget to brake, it will brake for you. You don't think about it when you get in the car, but all around you is the testament to human know-how and a word about what humans can do when they put their mind to it. And the ability of humans to create technology and to solve problems is so great that, that sometimes it is lifted up to a place where it becomes a god, where people put their hopes in it. And so when there are problems in this world or troubles in this life, we assume that humans will be able to solve those problems. That the only thing we need to do is think harder or create some new technology and we will be able to deal with these issues. You see that especially as our world becomes more and more secular. As people pay less attention to God, as religion becomes less important, human power and human knowledge becomes an easy replacement God. And you even hear people say things like, religion is the problem. Religion is what makes us fight. If we just get rid of religion, and if we just focused on reason, if we just thought, if we were just rational people, then we would live in a paradise of peace and happiness. In one of his books, Tim Keller quotes from a website called A Good Life Without God, which gives a pretty typical statement of this kind of belief. This is what they say on this atheist website. They say, without faith in religion, we will finally be able to achieve an open and tolerant society where there is mutual respect for all people and all people will be able to reach their potential. Let's get rid of religion, reason, knowledge. That's where we should be putting our hopes. There are real problems with this view. 
I read this observation in a book by a man named Daniel Taylor this week. And Daniel Taylor uh, talks about something that you often hear when people talk about how to solve their problems in the world. A statement, something like this, say someone's thinking about the problem of homelessness in the world, and you'll hear someone say, we should be able to solve the problem of homelessness. If we can put a man on the moon, we should be able to solve homelessness. Or maybe world hunger. Why can't we solve world hunger? We can put a man on the moon, we should be able to solve world hunger. Taylor says this kind of statement is completely wrong-headed. Here's a quote. Putting someone on the moon is almost infinitely easier than solving a problem that involves the nature of human beings. Putting someone on the moon is a technical task. It involves engineering, repeated experiments, manufacturing. That's relatively simple. Getting rid of homelessness, getting rid of world hunger, that's a problem that involves human souls. Thinking of a problem like homelessness and you get into mental illness and family dysfunction and neighborhood fears and neighborhood prejudices and political inertia and all sorts of human soul issues. And those problems are infinitely more tricky than technical problems. You don't fix a soul with knowledge. There's no vaccine that you can take that will get rid of pride. There's no mathematical equation that will enable you to get greed out of your heart. There's nothing that you can read in a book that will end prejudice. Knowledge and know-how are enormously powerful. They can create amazing things, but they have limited power. Without addressing the issues of the soul, we will keep, as human beings, committing the same old sins over and over again, only we will do them with bigger and better tools, and we will create more and more damage. And a lot of modern thinkers are starting to catch on to this. Jonathan Haidt, I don't know if you've heard of this name, he's a social psychologist at New York University, teaches in the business school. He's not a Christian at all. He's an atheist, an avowed atheist. But what he studies is the nature of human behavior, what makes people do what they do. And he's come to realize through his study and a lot of people with him that our knowledge and our reason are not the thing that are steering us as we make our decisions. And he's come up with an analogy. And he says, when you're making your decisions, it's like there's an elephant and a rider on the elephant. It's like a rider trying to steer an elephant. The rider is the rational part of you. It's the part that makes plans. It's the part that gives reasons. It's the part that tells you the things that you ought to do and that you should do. The elephant is all the rest of you. It's your fears and your worries and your hopes and your dreams and your traumas and your wounds and all that stuff. That's not stuff you learn in a book. That's not stuff you get through knowledge. That's stuff you get through experience. The elephant part of you is, is formed by the people you grew up with, by the people who loved you, or by the people who failed to love you, or by the stories that you were told growing up. Those are the things that shape and form the elephant. And what Haidt says that when it comes to the, the, the battle between the rider and the elephant and steering your life, guess who the stronger one is? It's the elephant. 
The rider can have all the plans in the world and all the good intentions in the world, but if the elephant is spooked, if the elephant is triggered, if something triggers the elephant's anxiety or its passions or its temptations, and we all know this from our own behavior, nine out of ten times, the elephant is the one who dictates the way things should go. It's the soul. The soul is the center of us. It's in the realm of the soul, the realm of the elephant, where things really happen. Of course, we didn't need social psychologists to tell us this. The Bible told us that 3,000 years ago. I already talked about how the Bible lifts up knowledge as something that's important to us and tells us to pursue the life of the mind. But even as it does that, there's this other voice in Scripture which is constantly saying to us in one way or another, you are not as smart as you think you are. There's another voice in Scripture that's constantly limiting the power of human knowledge. Isaiah 40, verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. His understanding no one can fathom. Proverbs 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding because you're not all that smart. Proverbs 3, verse 7, and a lot of other places in Proverbs, do not be wise in your own eyes. One of the worst things in wisdom literature is to be wise in your own eyes, to think that you know more than you really do. Romans 11, verse 33, which Mike read a little earlier. How unsearchable are God's judgments, his paths beyond all tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Human knowledge, scripturally, has severe limitations. And not only does scripture tell us that, scripture tells us where to turn then to find true wisdom. Which brings us to Psalm 131, which I said was my favorite psalm. Psalm 131 is a psalm of a man who's come to the end of his knowledge. A psalmist who's perplexed. Something terrible has happened to him. Something has gone on in his life that he cannot explain, that makes no sense to him. And to describe that, he compares himself to a weaned child. So a toddler who is no longer getting breast milk. And like a toddler who is inconsolable because he can't understand why mom would take away breast milk. Well, it's a good thing. Mom, why are you taking it away? This makes no sense to me. That's how this man feels when this good thing is taken out of his life. It's inexplicable for him. But he doesn't keep trying to understand what he knows he'll never understand. And he doesn't keep fighting his mother. Wisdom for him is learning to rest and quiet his soul like a weaned child with his mother. He doesn't understand, but he's able to rest his soul in his mom, in his Lord, in terms of the psalmist. Can you hear that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is doing the same thing, saying the same thing as a psalmist. He calls Christ and the cross the wisdom of God, okay? And he sets the wisdom of God, the wisdom of the cross, over against the philosophies and the wisdom of the world. 
But when he does that, he's not saying philosophy is bad and knowledge is bad and you shouldn't study philosophy. What he's saying is that philosophy is only taking place at this level. It's at the level of the writer. And the cross of Christ doesn't function at the level of the writer. It's deeper wisdom. The Holy Spirit, the work of the cross, goes all the way down to the elephant. It goes down to the soul. What happens in the cross changes your soul. You don't come to the cross to get knowledge, first of all. You don't come there with a notebook. You don't come there to cram for your test or to learn atonement theology at the beginning. You come to the cross and you fall on your knees and you open up your heart and you open up your soul and you tell God all the stuff in there that you can't fix no matter how hard you try. And you let his blood and his spirit go down into that place and clean out your prejudice and clean out your fear and clean out your anxiety. You don't come to the cross to learn things. You come to the cross to be made completely new. This is why we do Christian schools. This is why we spend all that time and energy teaching our children at Christian schools. It's not the only tool for educating the souls of our children, but it's a pretty good one. There are other ways to do it, and other parents make other choices. But in our Christian schools, we don't just teach our kids so that they perform well on tests. We speak to their souls. I want to finish with this story. Tim Keller, as you know, is one of my favorite authors, one of my favorite people to read, really intellectual guy, trained in philosophy, really smart guy. If you want to work on the life of the Christian mind, there's very few people who are better to read than Tim Keller. Maybe you don't know, Tim Keller is dying. He was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer about six months ago. And uh, just last week, in fact, he wrote an article in the Atlantic magazine where he talked about the fact and what it was like to know that he was facing death. And he said something which I've heard a lot of ministers say. He said, you know, it's different when it's you. You can sit beside a lot of people when they're dying as a minister and you can comfort them and say gospel things to them. But when it's you, it hits you at a different level. It hits you in your soul, right? It gets all that stuff churning. And so he's learned to stop thinking sometime and just rest his heart on God. He's working on doing what the psalmist did in Psalm 131 stilling and quieting his soul. And as part of that, in this article, he told this story about Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas is the, the greatest theologian of the Catholic Church. He lived in the 13th century. His Summa Theologiae is still foundational for Catholic theology and was also very influential for Protestant theology too. Thomas was a monk in this ultra-brilliant guy. He did the life of the mind all day, every day. But one day, when he was working on his summa, um, we know the date, December 6th, 1273, he stopped working on his great work. And the other brothers noticed. And a brother named Reginald came to him and said, Brother Thomas, how come you're not, how come you're not working on your, your, your book? And Thomas told him that he had an experience of God and his love that was so overpowering that it made all his theology seem like straw. That's no word against the life of the mind, but that's the great theologian realizing 
that all that intellectual stuff is founded in a deeper place. The place of the soul. That's where our hope belongs. Thomas knew that. And so do you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that here in this place we can open up our souls to you again. And you know all the places where our souls are filled with things that we cannot figure out. Questions about life that make no sense to us. Sins that we cannot remove. Fears that we we can't seem to manage. So Lord, we fall on our knees before your cross and we open ourselves up and we pray again that you will send your spirit to make us slowly whole. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.